us. But this morning we are going to return back to the book of Matthew. So if you're not there yet, open up to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, where we left off, I don't know, maybe seven, eight weeks ago, quite a, quite a while ago. But we're returning there this morning and we will be here for a long, long time. Well, to the end of the book, but at least uh, until we finish the book. Maybe I should say that. I think we've been in here for eight years now, so it'll be nice to, uh, to come to the completion of this great work of God. Now, I want to introduce the Gospel of Matthew, however, this morning uh, through the Gospel of John, which we'll spend a little bit of time in this morning, uh, particularly uh, John's opening words in the prologue of his Gospel, John 1.5, in which he said, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake or comprehend it. In other words, it did not extinguish the light. It did not extinguish the light. And this captures in a few words the reality of God's revelation, God's revealing himself always to man and man's rejection of that revelation. The light shone in the darkness in the life of Christ primarily. It shone through the words of Christ That he spoke everything that the Father gave him to speak. He spoke with divine authority. He spoke with divine clarity. He spoke the words of truth, revealing the glory of God and revealing the Father. This light shone in the darkness through his works. He did all of the works that the Father had given him to do. He declared that God was in fact in him and that he was one with the Father through the things that he did. He was the light shining in the darkness as the one who was the embodiment and the fulfillment of everything that Scripture anticipated, everything that Scripture looked forward to. He told the Jewish leaders that you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have life. But what did he say? But it is these that reveal me. It's these that reveal me. In other words, on all of your knowledge of Scripture should have unfolded for you the character of God, the nature of God, and the glory of God in such a way that when he appeared, as the prophets anticipated, they should have welcomed him and embraced him and loved him because he was the very embodiment of their Old Testament law, their God. And yet, despite this light shining so clearly in the light, In the life of Christ, in the person of Christ, man will, by nature, by fallen nature, always reject this light. Matter of fact, he says in John chapter 3, let me remind you of these words, you're familiar with them. But he says this in verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light... And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And so this tension exists of God who in grace and according to his sovereign plan is always revealing himself. Revealed himself ultimately in Christ. And man who is always by their own inclination, their own fallen natures, rejecting that light. Because to submit ourselves to the light is to have our guilt exposed. In the words of Jesus, it is 
to have our evil exposed, our deeds exposed. And that is one thing that fallen man will not accept, will simply not accept. We know this in our own life. We know this in the world around us. We know this as the consistent testimony of Scripture. And to reject Christ, then, is to reject God. Because he is the ultimate revelation of the Father, and he is himself, in fact, the eternal Son of God. So a person's attitudes towards Christ is their, attitudes toward, is their attitude toward God. So it's impossible to say, then, of course, that I love God if a person doesn't love Christ, if they don't delight in him and rejoice in him and trust in him. Indeed, the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. So the natural bent of fallen man is rejection and it is hatred. And there's nowhere else that this is more dramatically displayed than in the very accounts that we've been looking at in this final days of Christ, indeed the final hours of Christ, in which he stands before both the Jewish court and the Gentile court and is falsely accused and condemned by both. It is right to say then that this scene represents not only the Jewish rejection of Christ, but the world's rejection of Christ, each bearing a particular guilt, but all guilty before God. And I would suggest that when we think about the fallenness of man, and when we think about the sinful condition of man and the darkened nature of man, uh, we would see that more clearly, not simply in the evil things that people do, as terrible as those are, as, as grievous as those are, and as amazing as it is, the amount of wickedness and violence and hurt that the human heart is capable of inflicting on another person. But those aren't the greatest display of human depravity. They are fruits of it, but they're not the greatest display of it. The greatest display of the fallenness of the human heart is how we treat Christ, is how we treat the revelation of God. If we want to see how deep our sin goes, we don't simply look at acts that we commit, but we look at our attitude toward Christ and man's attitude toward Christ. Indeed, this is why someone who has an externally moral life but is unbelieving in Christ is as deeply convicted of their sin and is as deeply guilty as the one who lives a terrible life committing egregious acts all the time. Because the issue is our response to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that all the more makes tragic what we see here in this trial of Jesus. Rejected by those he created and by those he came to save. But, as we see throughout scripture as well, the injustice of man, the wickedness of man, does not negate the purposes of God and the revelation of his glory. And even in this trial, then, the rejection of man, the injustice that Christ is going to bear, actually becomes also a vehicle, a backdrop, through which the glory of God shines in the face of Christ. In which his majesty, his sovereignty, his love, his grace, all of these things are displayed through these terrible, terrible events. And all of us then need to understand that while we see the particular act of evil committed here by the Jewish leadership and by the Gentiles represented here by Pilate, a leader in Judea, we, we don't put this as a guilt on them back then, but they are representative of the rebellion that's in our own heart. 
and the fallenness that is in our own heart by nature, apart from a sovereign work of God to give us a new nature and a new life. I can't remember which hymn it is, but we sing that. I, I hear my voice among the mockers. Do you all know that? I hear my voice among the mockers. That is a way to say when we sing that line, we're saying that the guilt that was displayed in this rejection of Christ is our guilt. We share in it. Not the specific sin, but the same heart that rebels against God. And we bear in that sense the guilt also of rejecting Christ. And yet again, in the midst of that, he offers salvation. And so what we're going to see this morning by introduction, we're going over the next two weeks to look at verses 11 through 26. This morning we'll only make it to verse 14 and then we'll finish out the rest of the chapter uh, next week. And I want us to see here then this in this passage. This is one of the main themes. There's that God's sovereign glory and purpose in Christ is both revealed through the rejection of Christ... And in the same way, it exposes and overcomes the darkness of man. God's sovereign glory and purposes in Christ exposes and overcomes the darkness of man. So let me begin by reading verses 11 through 26 uh, with you. And then we'll look at the first few verses a little more closely. So begin with me in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priest and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Look back up at verse 11. And we'll look at one primary point this morning, and it's this. That the humble obedience of Christ shines against the hypocrisy and the hatred of the self-righteous. The humble obedience of Christ shines against the hypocrisy and the hatred of, self, of the self-righteous. 
here represented by the Jewish leadership. Now, as was noted before, and we're not going to recount the details of this, Matthew is laying before us really two sets of trials, two separate instances or occasions, as it were, of the condemnation of Jesus, of the false condemnation of Jesus. The first set of trials was by the Jews, and it was particularly religious in nature. They were looking for a reason as a religious nation, a theological reason, really, to condemn Christ, to uh, put him to death. And that's what we looked at particularly in verses 63 through 68. It was, according to their law, a false charge that would justify them in their own mind to kill Christ, to, to put him to death. But Matthew is, now, Matthew is now bringing us into the second round of trials, and they are particularly and primarily secular in nature. They are a new set of charges that the Jews have trumped up to bring Christ into conflict or opposition with Roman authority, thereby inciting Pilate or giving him a justification to put him to death. To put him to death. They are essentially manipulating the Roman government to carry out their own intentions. That's what this whole scene is really doing from the Jewish side. They're manipulating Rome so that they might use the power of Rome's sword, their power to put someone to death, to achieve their own ends. Now let's look at the first point then under this, and it is that the self-righteous hate Jesus. The self-righteous hate Jesus. We know that, but let's look at it in the context of this trial. And I want to begin on, on that thought by noting this. J.C. Ryle said this many years ago. So listen, he said, Men fancy that if they saw a perfect person, they would love and admire him. They forget that when a really perfect man was on earth, in the person of the Son of God, he was hated and put to death. Men fancy that we want a perfect man, someone who is perfectly righteous, And yet, when that one appeared on earth, he was rejected. He was utterly hated. And why? Well, we read it in John earlier, because Jesus exposed their sin. If there's one thing self-righteousness hates, and that sin hates, it is to be exposed by the light, to be exposed by the truth. And even more here, however, it's intensified because the religious leaders here are the ones who were the the keepers, supposedly, of the righteousness of the nation, the truth of God to God's people. They were the ones who were seen as the spiritual leaders. And here, the truly righteous ones stood before them, the self-righteous, and what did they do? They passionately hated them. Jesus was the very embodiment of the law, the very embodiment of the righteousness of the law. Of course, he was, in fact, the very embodiment of their God. He was God the Son. And they hated him and they murdered him, those who prided themselves on preserving the law. Now Matthew introduces this second part of the trial. Uh, Actually back in verses 1 and 2, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate the governor. So he had already introduced this. He gave the interlude about Judas's remorse. We covered that uh, last time and ultimately his taking of his own life 
of suicide. So he's now picking it up again. And, and so he's moving forward from their having conferred together, from them having completed their plan, and they now present Jesus to Pilate. And I want to notice one thing here, and it's this. The fact that they bring Jesus before Pilate to work with him shows not only their determination and commitment to do what is ever necessary to put Jesus to death, but it magnifies the depth of their hatred of Jesus. Let me explain that a little more. Pilate was no friend of the Jews. He was no friend of the Jews. This was not an amiable relationship that Pilate had with those over which he ruled. In fact, the relationship between Pilate and the Jews was quite contentious. And Pilate's character is noted pretty consistently throughout history as one who is being morally weak, arrogant, and generally, though there were some positive things that he did, generally being an inept ruler, an inept ruler. And eventually he was deposed from his rulership, his leadership there in the land of Judea after only 10 years of fulfilling his administration. He was placed in that position around 26 AD and he was removed by the then emperor around 36 AD because he was essentially an inept ruler. He kept doing dumb things and he was unable to uh, fulfill his role rightly. But within that 10 years, he managed to do many things to provoke the Jews, to intensify this hostile relationship uh, that he really had with them. Let me give you just a few examples here to signify and to to show the the, the difficulty and the the self-humiliation that these Jews faced having to go to Pilate and their ultimate hatred that overcame all of that so that they might achieve uh, their ends. In A.D. 26, several years before this scene, uh, Pilate brought Roman standards, that is like flags, with representations of the emperor into Jerusalem. And that was, of course, very offensive to the Jews. And Pilate knew that when he did it. And when Pilate refused their request to remove them... To out of Jerusalem to remove the, this offense from this Jewish stronghold, he sent his soldiers armed with swords to kill all of those resisting. He was just going to massacre them. He was just going to kill them all. This, as many of the other things, are recorded in Josephus. And Josephus gives this account of their response. It says, they, they, being the Jews, threw themselves upon the ground, laid their necks bare, and said they would take their death very willingly rather than that they should transgress the wisdom of their laws. In other words, they said, you want to kill us? Go ahead and kill us. Now, this is still fresh in the mind of the Jewish people. In fact, there's very likely some of those very leaders who were a part of that whole scene are a part of this whole group that's presenting Jesus to Pilate. There was no love for him at all. Later, Pilate stole funds from the Jewish treasury to build an aqueduct. And then, in order to silence any uprising, any of those who were resisting him and going to cause a mob or a crowd uh, to prevent this thing that he did, he sent out some of his soldiers dressed like the common people in the crowd, but they were armed with clubs. And as soon as any began to speak out and become disruptive, he gave command to his soldiers to take out the clubs and start beating them. And so severe was it that some actually died from being beaten to death in the crowds because they resisted Pilate's order. 
It was under the order of Pilate and recorded for us in Luke 13.1 that several Galileans were killed, if you remember, and their blood was mixed with their sacrifice while they were presenting to the altar. He went in and he killed them even in the temple area and he had them put to death with the sword. So there was much hostility between the Jews and between Pilate. There was no love loss between any of them. In fact, the Jews despised not only Rome in general, but they despised Pilate in particular because of his treachery and because of his irreverence for their traditions and for their religion. And so they hated him. They hated him and the feeling was mutual. He hated them as well. And yet they needed him. They needed him. And so despite their hatred for Pilate, they had an even greater hatred for Jesus. And so here they are. The Jews take Jesus and early in the morning they bring him before Pilate. They bring him before Pilate. And this really is, as I said, no, a manipulation of the Roman government to use their sword. And it's really in principle no different than what we see today with many who, use, who have an agenda and they just simply want to use the government to accomplish their ends. We see it with the homosexual movement. We see it with the feminist and pro-choice, so they're called, pro-abortion movements who try to hijack the laws of the state to make it illegal to speak what is righteous, to make it illegal to speak even from the word of God. That would be their goal. In other words, they're trying to use and manipulate government to silence any opposition. And that's essentially what the Jewish leaders are doing here. They can't do it all on their own. They have to submit to the rule of Rome. And so they're going to use Rome and manipulate them so that they can carry out their iniquity. It's an age-old tactic. But what's so striking here, of course, is again, these are the Jewish leaders. They're doing this not against some criminal, but against their God and their Messiah. And throughout this whole trial, as, as really throughout all of beginning back in 26, but particularly intensified in these last hours of the life of Jesus, is this incredible, incredible irony. And so notice here, he says, Jesus stood before the governor. In other words, he stood before the governor as a criminal and one accused of a crime. He stands before this pathetic and this weak Roman official and subjects himself to his authority, subjecting himself to the violence of these Jewish leaders. What's so ironic about that? Well, I think you know, but let me read this to you. Listen to Colossians 1. Listen to who's standing there before the governor, the one being subjected. It's he who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one of all of creation. The one whom, by whom all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Get the, the contrast of this scene. The one of whom Paul could say that in his divine nature, the eternal son of God, the preeminent one of all creation, the one who will have first place, he'll say later, in all things, the one who created all authority in heaven and earth, both physical here and in the spiritual realms, is here submitting himself to a weak and a pathetic Roman ruler. You know what this is? 
Well, if you've been listening to Pastor Bigelow, you'd know this is meekness. This is meekness. This is the meek one. He is the ultimate example. It would be impossible even to match his meekness because nobody has the same amount of glory as he has to be meek with. And yet here he is. Here he is, the Holy One, standing before this puny ruler, subjecting himself to his decision and to the iniquity of these Jewish leaders. It's his meekness. It's his obedience to the Father. It is his love for his people that is causing him to stand there. And yet they are so blinded by hypocrisy in this. That's what self-righteousness does. It, it blinds a person to the real nature of their sin. Well, Matthew simply drops us here in verse 11 to this scene before Pilate because he's specifically focusing on this charge that was leveled against Jesus, namely that he was the king of the Jews because that is going to be the hot point. That's the charge that's really going to ultimately justify Pilate, who knew that he was innocent, justify Pilate's decision to put him to death and to have him ultimately crucified. But there are actually quite a few events that happened before this. And I want to look at those. If you might want to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 fills out some of these details, particularly in verses 28 through 38. Here, John is picking up the scene and some of the events that take place between... Matthew 27, 2, where they confer together and take him, and chapter, verse 11, where he actually now is brought and appears before the, uh, the Roman governor, before Pilate, before Pilate. And so he fills out some of the details, and these are, are found uh, in John. Luke's going to help us in just a little bit, but it's primarily John who reveals these things to us. And might I add that this is one of the reasons why God gave us four Gospels. So that compared together, we might get an even fuller picture of the life of Christ, as well as another witness to these events. So here in John chapter 18, verse 28, he tells us that they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium when it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. This is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. This is probably one of the most shining illustrations of Jesus' condemnation of them as hypocrites. When he said in verse 23 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice. There's everything but justice is going on here. It's the greatest act of injustice. And mercy, there's no mercy And faithfulness, there's utterly unfaithfulness to God's word and their position. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And so here you have in their blindness of hypocrisy. And this look applies not to Pharisees, but all of us and anyone who is controlled by a legalistic, a works-based and self-righteous attitude toward religion utterly blind to their sin. They, in their mind, have convinced themselves that there's some kind of righteousness that they're upholding by not defiling themselves to eat the Passover when, in fact, they are committing the greatest sin that it would be possible for man even to commit. 
Now, it's not exactly clear what kind of defilement they were afraid of. And so there's a lot of discussion on that. We're not going to go into the details. And a lot of it has to do with whether John is referring to the Passover, the Passover meal proper, as it were, or the Passover feast altogether, which would have been for another seven days. It's not clear whether the defilement was simply by entering into the home of a Gentile, which according to the Mishnah was a defilement, a 24-hour defilement because of associating with a foreigner, foreigner, or whether it was a seven-day defilement that was because of coming in contact with a dead person. One of the common practices of the Gentiles was to bury their dead in their home and sometimes even to take aborted fetuses and put them down the drain. And so therefore, to come in contact with a Gentile home was to pollute yourself, contact with the dead, which would have defiled them ceremonially for a period of seven days. Whichever one it was, whatever the specific defilement was, the point is, is that they were scrupulous about the minutia of the law while rejecting the weightiness of their sin that they were committed, committing. And so Pilate, acquiescing to them in verse 29, says he went out to them. They wouldn't go into where he was. The praetorium was the governor's official residence. It was probably one located right there in Jerusalem. And so he goes out to them. He goes out from his residence to them to hear their charges. And he says to them in verse 2, What charges do you bring? Now, this is really quite interesting. In one sense, it is a statement that marks the formal beginnings of a trial. Really, the second time that these charges are being brought before Pilate. If you'll remember, Pilate is the one who gave authority to send soldiers to go arrest Jesus in the garden. He mentions that in the beginning of the chapter. Verse 3, Judas having received the Roman a cohort and officers from the chief priest and so on. Pilate knew the charges. He was well aware of the the leader's intentions to put Jesus to death. He knew what they were wanting. And they probably then were coming to him and most likely expecting him simply to go along with their desires, to simply give the Roman stamp for their desire to put him uh, to death. And really this is, A tense kind of interchange then. Because it's provoking. It's another instance of Pilate provoking his authority against them. And provoking them to recognize that they ultimately are submitted to him. And so he's beginning this new case. And he's really flaunting his position as a Roman official. And their annoyance has come shown by what they say. They answered and said to him. If this man were not an evildoer. We would not have delivered him to you. They were vague because it was almost in the sense they're saying, you know what, we don't have to give you specific charges. You just give him over to us and let us, let us take care of that. You simply follow through with our desires and Pilate saying, I'm not going to do that. You have to take upon yourselves the initiative to convince me. And so this is really quite a tense interchange. And it may even be that Pilate is also in part trying to distance himself from this whole incident. He was already not on great standing with the emperor, with Caesar, because of some of his misdeeds. And so he may have just saying he doesn't even want to get involved with it. That might be a part of it as well. But whatever his motivation, he continues to provoke these leaders. And he says, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. 
verse 31. And the Jews said to him, <coughs> excuse me, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. And again, this is a humiliating admission, which is precisely what Pilate wanted. Now, some attack John here and say that he is historically inaccurate. They argue that the Sanhedrin did, in fact, have the authority to put people to death. You see, the stoning of Stephen would be one example of that. They're bringing the adulterous woman before Jesus to have her stoned for committing the sin. And in fact, the Sanhedrin did have authority, according to Roman law, to execute capital punishment, particularly for those, even a Roman citizen, who violated the rules guarding the inner sanctuary of the temple. So if one entered it wrongly or illegally, the Sanhedrin had the right to condemn them and to put them to death. And their means of death was by stoning. However, they did not have a carte blank authority to put someone to death. In reality, they lost this authority either in 30 AD or 6 AD, depending on which source you go with, which is likely uh, on account of Rome, who at that point established a representative in Judea and in Jerusalem who would govern the people. And it was at that point then they took away this right of the Sanhedrin to just have an absolute authority to put someone to death. So in one sense, he's acknowledging that, look, Rome is the real authority here, not you Jews. If anything's going to happen in relation to Jesus, it's going to be because I decide it, not because you decide it. That's the real idea of what's going on. But he may have had another motivation as well, and we've mentioned this before. The leaders feared the people. The leaders feared the people, or at least the, the leaders may have had another motivation. They feared the people. They feared that if they went themselves on their own authority and their own capacity to arrest Jesus, then, in fact, the crowds could be incited against them and may turn on them. And, in fact, their own lives and their own position would be in danger. And so they needed Rome in this instance to provide a way to alleviate some of their responsibility. To kind of take away some of the blame from them. To blame shift and say, look, it's Rome that's doing this. It's Rome that's seeing Jesus as a subversive, as a subversive person who's challenging Roman authority. And so there's a part here where they're trying to distance themselves before the eyes of the crowd. Now, it's interesting, of course, later they're going to manipulate the crowd to call for Christ's death. But they were doing it from the platform of him already being accused by the Roman leaders. You see how they're manipulating the system? All of this is intentional. All of it is a part of their wicked plans. However, the ultimate reason that this execution needed to take place by Rome is given in verse 32. Look at verse 32. It was to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So while all of this is playing out on the human scene, the reality is is that God is in absolute control fulfilling his word. Absolute control fulfilling his word. So in other words, what we need to see in that is this. It was the Father who had determined that Christ would die by the cross. It was the Father who was divinely orchestrating these events so that the death that his son would die as a substitute for his people would be the most shameful, 
would be the most torturous death that they had invented at that time. It was the Father who had determined that he would die by the cross. And it was what Jesus already knew. He knew that. Matter of fact, he says in verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus. We've seen this many times in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was the most explicit about this right before this week began in Matthew chapter 20. He says this, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So Jesus knew exactly what awaited him. He knew exactly what the purpose of the Father was. He knew exactly what the details of all of these events were pointing to and leading to. But listen to this amazing thing. In the Gospel of John, John 3.15, he actually pictures his death in this way. So he doesn't, like in Matthew, use the specific language of the crucifixion, but he says this, John 3.15, The Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. Lifted up. He's anticipating there in that language that he would be lifted up from the earth and of his crucifixion so that all who look on him to believe would have eternal life. So this is really then in this statement acknowledging that Jesus knows that this is the death he has to die in order to save his people. This is the death he has to die. This is what he has to go through in order to be the substitute for his people. In either case, Pilate entered again into the Praetorium, verse 33, summoned Jesus, and he said, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? That is the charge that was the most significant to Pilate. And it's likely at this point, then, that the Jews introduced their charge against Jesus of being seditious against the nation of Rome. Of being seditious against the nation of Rome. Don't turn there, but this is where Luke helps us. And Luke says this. What did they say? Where does this charge, king of the Jews, come from? Listen to Luke 23, 2. And the whole body of them got up, brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him. And what did they accuse him of? This, a threefold charge initially. They begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. That was the charge. Those were the charges, but those were what the leaders brought against him. Now, this is outright lie. This is outright lie and hypocrisy. Look at what they charge him of, misleading the nation. Misleading the nation, being an insurrectionist, as it were. What was paramount in the life of Rome and in the Roman government was the Pax Romana. In other words, the peace of Rome. That peace was to be maintained at all cost. That was one of the primary responsibilities of their leaders in the various jurisdictions of the Roman kingdom to maintain peace. And so any threat to that, they saw a threat to the stability of the nation of Rome. And so this idea of misleading the nation is one who is an insurrectionist. And even in this sense, then, is a threat to Rome. He's going to stir up the people who are under your jurisdiction. That's the idea of it. But this is incredible blindness. But in their eyes, think about this. In their eyes, these Jews, 
uh, there was an element of truth in this charge. They did feel he was misleading the nation. And in fact, according to their own perspective and agenda, he was misleading the nation. He was leading the nation out of their teaching against works righteousness. He was leading the nation away from their false authority that they exercised over the people that they did for their own glory. He was leading them away from that. He was leading them to God and away from their own power and love for influence. And again, that was what made them so angry. Matthew 27, Pilate said he knew that he delivered, they delivered him over because of envy. Because of envy. But the irony is this. That though they charge him and no doubt at some measure believe that charge in their own mind or convince themselves of it, it was in fact they who were misleading the nation. They were misleading the nation. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15. He says, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, speaking of these leaders. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Leave them alone. They're going to self-destruct by their own iniquity, by their own wickedness. Listen to what he says again in Matthew chapter 23. He says this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from the people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, that is, one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Who are the misleading the nation? Are these leaders? Who misleads the people of God are false teachers. The ones who teach error. The one who seek to have followers after themselves and not to make followers of Christ. These are what John would call thieves who come only to kill and to destroy in John chapter 10. It's those who seek to satisfy their own appetite. False teachers, beloved, are driven by their own desire for self-glory. They're driven by their own desire to use those they bring under their spell and under their teaching to simply advance their own glory. Some from among this group, the, the Pharisaical party known as the Judaizers in Galatians, Paul describes in this way. They are those who are circumcised, do not even keep the law themselves. Listen, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. That they may boast in your flesh. And here they are. Here they are bringing Jesus, the one who is the true shepherd and the true sheep, the one who is leading the nation to God, and they bring to him the charge of misleading the people. It's utter hypocrisy. Second, they say that he was forbidding the people to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this is an outright lie and exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. Exactly the opposite. You remember the coin that was brought to Jesus? You remember that? They brought the coin. They said, should we pay? Or uh, they came to Jesus with the question and said, should we pay taxes to Rome? That was offensive to them partly because of their subjection to Rome, partly because it bore the image of the emperor, which they saw as idolatry. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus tells them to bring a coin. Whose image is on the coin? They say Caesar's. And what does he say? 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. In other words, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Submit to that institution. Here they're flipping that around and charging him with saying to that he's teaching people to rebel. This is an outright lie. An outright lie. They knew full well that Jesus was not encouraging insurrection or rebellion against Rome, but just the opposite. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they were disillusioned with him. And the fact is that the scripture teaches all authority comes from God, is established by him, and that we as believers are to pay our taxes. We're to submit to the government in as much as it doesn't require us to disobey God. And so they're deliberately lying and trying to pay Christ as being against the interest of Rome. And beloved, this is the same tactic that was used against the early martyrs in the church. It's the same tactic. They wanted to paint the Christians as ones who were disrupting the peace of society. The ones who would not submit to Roman authority by acknowledging the supreme authority through an act of sacrifice and an act of worship. And therefore they were a problem. They were causing rebellion. And therefore they need to be exterminated. They need to be killed. They were scapegoats. Which is exactly what these Jews, Jesus is for these Jews too. You remember Caiaphas said in John 11, it's better, it's more expedient that one man die for the nation than that everybody dies. He was a scapegoat for them as well. Of course, he was prophesying of more than he realized at the time. And this isn't just something that's happening to Jesus, beloved. It has a unique significance, of course, in the life of Jesus. But this is, in fact, the hatred of the world against Jesus and all of his followers. Don't think that we're immune to these very events that are happening to Christ. Listen to what he said. Just listen. Matthew 10, 25. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? If they're rising up against Jesus, who is the perfect one, how much are they going to do it against you and me? How much are they going to do it against the church of Christ? If he says in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Don't think that this is just something that happened then and then everything's going to be okay afterwards. Jesus is warning them that, look, the things that are coming upon me are going to come upon you. The hatred that they have for me is going to be their hatred toward you who are in union with me, who is identified with me. Pastor Ted is going to get here eventually. Matthew 5, 11, he says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and we say in the same way they persecuted Christ. False charges, lies, manipulating the words that he said, manipulating the character of his life. Beloved, that's what's happened to Christians throughout the ages. It's all centered against Christ. When he says he fills up, Paul says he fills up the sufferings of Christ and the church is going to do that. He's saying this, essentially, that all of the world's hatred towards Christ, there's still more to be fulfilled. Christ has borne it for our redemption and now we bear it for his glory until the time he returns and sets all things right. So the hatred of the world towards Christ is going to be the hatred of the world towards his people. So when we look at this, 
we see then the hatred that we ourselves will bear out of faith. That's why he told Peter that, look, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because where I'm going, Peter, you're going to go. What they're going to do to me, Peter, they're going to do to you. He reminded him that at the end of John, didn't he? When he says they're going to take you to a place you don't want to go. They're going to kill you, Peter. That's going to be the price of following me. But let's look at the third charge. Again, we've already mentioned this was the key charge. They said that he himself is Messiah, a king. True, but an intentional perversion of Jesus' teaching. They knew the character of his ministry. They knew that it wasn't violent. As a matter of fact, when they came to arrest him, Jesus told the crowds, Have you come to out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you were against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. In other words, you know I'm not violent. You know that I'm not teaching insurrection, just the opposite. It's you, really, who wanted the insurrection. In fact, if that's really what he was teaching, they probably wouldn't have delivered him over. They would have supported him to go against Rome. He's like, you know these charges are false. You know that. But they refused to believe the testimony to his ministry. They refused to believe the testimony of the prophets that, in fact, their king would be a humble king. This was displayed when he came into Jerusalem, remember, on a colt. But this, again, is the specific charge that Pilate is going to pick up on because it's the charge that he's going to use to justify his killing of Jesus. And this is where Matthew picks it up in chapter 27, 11. He, when he's standing before the governor, when he's standing before this leader in Judea, and he says, are you then the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? He really ignores the other charges and he zeroes in right on this one. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one who is the ruler of the Jewish people? What does Jesus say in in verse 11 of Matthew? He says, it is as you say. It is as you say. He said, use the same construction actually two other times in this whole thing. Once against Judas, when Judas says, it is I. Jesus says, it's as you say. You've said it yourself. When they accused him in verse 64 of being the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, you have said it. You have said it. It's an affirmation of what the person has just said. It's an affirmation of saying, yes, it is true. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. This was indeed a true charge. Not only is the king of the Jews, but who is he? He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Yes, he is the king. But his establishment of his kingdom is yet to come. For now as the kingdom is expressed in a different manner. And understand this. He first had to make his people righteous before he establishes his righteous kingdom upon the earth. And so he explains this in John 18 again. Let me just look at this quickly. In John 18 he explains what kind of king he is. So he's made this confession before Pilate. As a matter of fact, right before this, Jesus answered and he says, when Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. 
realm. It's not of this realm. And in doing this, Jesus, first of all, highlights the guilt that is really against the nation of Israel, the Jews. Even from the testimony of this Gentile leader, he's provoking. It's not that Jesus was looking for information. He knew Pilate didn't say that on his own initiative. But he's drawing out of Pilate the indictment and saying, look, your own nation, your own nation has done this. I'm a Gentile leader. Your people have brought you before me. This is devastating. Here is an unbelieving Gentile identifying the really astounding horror of what is happening here to Jesus. He's being handed over by his own people. He's being falsely accused by his own people. He's being hated by his own people. He's rejected by his own people. And it's his own people who are insisting on his death. But in spite of this, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach about the true nature of the charge against him. He simply ignores the last part of the question, what have you done, because it's irrelevant, and he addresses the nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's not of this realm. It's a kingdom that's spiritual in nature. What does he mean by this? Well, it means, first of all, that he does not derive his authority from earthly sources. In other words, he's saying to Pilate, look, I'm a king. He's going to say that in the next verse. I am a king. But my kingship and the authority of my kingdom has nothing to do with how you gain your authority, which is dependent on earthly powers. My authority is not earthly. My authority is heavenly. My authority comes from heaven. My authority comes from the Father. My authority comes from his own divine nature. It doesn't, it doesn't depend at all upon you. At all. Not even in the smallest amount. As a matter of fact, he's the one who has authority over all flesh. Somebody says in his prayer, speaking to the Father, Even as you, the Father, gave him, Christ, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The one who has the true authority here is Christ, not Pilate. As a matter of fact, he's going to challenge him on that later. Jesus answered, you would have. He's going to tell Pilate, who said, don't you know I have authority to crucify you? He's going to tell him later in 1911 of John, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered to me you has the greatest sin, has the greater sin. In other words, look, you're all up in a, You're all concerned and you're all up in this tizzy because you're worried about your authority being challenged and out of room. But my kingdom isn't like that. My kingdom isn't like that. It's first spiritual in nature. It's a kingdom that first rules in the heart of men. It's a kingdom that requires the new birth, not a sword to enter into. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven He told Nicodemus, this isn't an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. You don't enter by a sword, but by faith in Christ. You don't enter by violence. That's not the weapons of our warfare, but by repentance, by repentance. Remember, Peter thought it was by the sword, too. He took out his sword. He cut off the ear of the slave of the high priest. Jesus said, put your sword away. 
put it away. Do you not think that I could command my father and we'd just get this taken care of all at once? He'd send his angels and we'd just wipe them out. Do you really think that if I wanted to do it by violence, I couldn't do it? That's not the nature of my kingdom. That's not the nature of my kingdom. And beloved, we need to hear this. We covered this then, but I'll mention again. We need to understand this. Being in the kingdom of Christ and fighting the war, the spiritual battle in the kingdom of Christ is not through earthly means. It's not through political activism. It's not through violence. It is through the gospel. It is speaking the truth and letting the spirit of God change men's hearts. This doesn't mean that there's not a physical aspect to his kingdom. He will establish his kingdom on a rejuvenated earth. That he will rule over that kingdom for a thousand years and then forever in the new heavens and new earth. But that's not first what his kingdom is now. It is first a kingdom that involves righteousness. It's a kingdom that involves righteousness. It's a kingdom in which he had to come and first make his people righteous. Well, we did not finish all of this week, but we will finish it next week. Let me leave you with this. Let me leave you with this. That Christ is a king. That Christ is a king. And standing here before Pilate, standing here under the false condemnation of the Jews, standing here being lied against, being uh, subject to the manipulation of government to put him, put him to death, all of this magnifies not only the depth of the sinfulness of the heart of man, but it magnifies the depth of his standing in our place at the cross. And he stands here not only as a savior, but he stands here as a model for us. He stands here as a model for us, which we'll look at later. He's the one who gave the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He is the one that we look to in our example of speaking the truth against the hostility of the world. And so the question is this. If you're here this morning, that's... A visible expression in one sense of us gathered together as being in the kingdom of God. Those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But it's not about being here that makes you in the kingdom of heaven. Have you entered into his kingdom through the new birth? Have you entered into his kingdom by trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone? Are you a part of his kingdom showing your citizenship by an obedient life through faith in Christ and love for him? These leaders, they professed that, but that wasn't the case. When it came down to it, they rejected him because he challenged them. But for the rest, for those who did know him, for those who did lose their life that they might gain him, for those of us who know him, that's the kingdom we want. The spiritual kingdom first. Union with Christ, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. Those are the things that mark us as being in the kingdom of God and under the rule of our king. Let me pray. Oh, Father, there is so much here. There's so much glory, so much for us to learn from as we go out from this place and we enter into this world that is as hostile to the truth of Christ as was the nation and the leaders and the rulers of Rome evident here. We have enjoyed this period of peace in our nation and we are so thankful for it and we hope that it lasts much longer. 
But let us not be deceived by this peace, the thinking that the world is our friend. The world is our mission field. Even as you came that you might bear witness to the Father, we go out and bear witness to you. And we thank you for the protection you give, but we also know that that is a momentary reprieve. In fact, the world does hate you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful as you were, to give the good confession, to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth in courage with courage, to speak the truth faithfully, to be willing to bear the shame that comes from a world who rejects you, even as you bore our shame and our guilt and our sin on the cross. Help us to meditate much on that and be faithful to you to the end. It is in the matchless name, your matchless name, O Christ, that we pray, and it is in you we trust to accomplish these good things in us by your Spirit. And if there's any here who have not yet entered into that kingdom, I pray that even today might be the day that they do. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.